When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It's a spooky thought that here's this thing, which is just a little weight hanging off of a string, and it secretly seems to know this thing that I have just been learning about Y and X in algebra class, and it gave me this feeling that there's a hidden world, that there's this secret world of math underneath the world we can see. Honestly, it felt like a quasi-religious experience, to tell you the truth. About 25 years ago, I read an article in Scientific American that fascinated me. It was about how pendulums, although they might have started out at different times, could fall into synchrony, and how many other things in nature can fall into synchrony, like a tree full of fireflies, which is an amazing sight, or cells in the human heart, which is not a good thing. Stephen Strogatz was one of the authors of the piece, and I thought he had a view of an unseen world because he possessed the ability to see it through the window of math. I had no understanding of math at all, but I wanted to see what he saw. The article said he was teaching at MIT, so I picked up the phone and I called him. I asked if I could come see him and ask him a few questions about his work. Good thing he was generous and said yes. Steve and I have been friends ever since, and when we get together, he tries heroically to help me get the gist of how some weird and wonderful thing in math works. I don't always get it, but I'm always fascinated by Steve. And I think you will be, too. He's an award-winning teacher, and he lets you start out where you are, which for me is usually no place. Steve's a professor at Cornell now, and we spoke over an internet hookup from New York to Ithaca. Steve, this is so great that you can join me on this show because you and I have had over the years so many fun conversations, and most of them about mathematics, which <laughs> I, which which word I hope hasn't made people drop out of the show at the, in the first <laughs> yeah, minute. Yeah, great start. Yeah. <laughs> Because I don't have any grasp of mathematics beyond very basic things. I taught my granddaughter uh, the first steps of algebra on the back of a pizza menu. But uh, she was six, and that's the level I'm at. (laughs) And I've always thought that if I could understand math better, I could understand the universe better. Because I think people, physicists who understand it through math, see things that I can't see. And I just wish I had their vision. You think I'm wrong about that? No, you're right about that. It, it would help. Um, there's a lot of 
beautiful and tantalizing and thrilling ideas about physics and other parts of science that, that are best seen through math. So that's one reason why for I think it's about 25 years now you and I have had these conversations. You know, I think each little thing will help. And since I know you love science so much, um, this would give you a whole new angle on thinking about it. One of the things I always think about is a story you've told in one of your books about how you became so interested in math and had a kind of a, I felt a sense of awe about math when you were plotting the movement of a pendulum on a chart, you suddenly realized what? What, what, what was it that came <laughs> over you? Well, it's, it's a, an epiphany. I mean, it was a formative moment in my life. I was 13. I was in my first science class in high school. And our teacher, Mr. DiCurcio, gave each of us a little stopwatch and a, um, a pendulum that was unusual in that you could make it longer or shorter. And then the instruction was, let it swing back and forth 10 times and time it with your stopwatch. How long does it take to go 10 times back and forth? And then it was really supposed to teach us how to use graph paper. That's really what this was supposed to be, that, you know, on the, the x-axis, you're going to put um, how long was the pendulum in centimeters and then, okay, if anybody's listening who is not even up to x-axis, that's, oh, yeah. that's the line that goes horizontally, right? Right, right, and right, And then right. there's a line that goes from the bottom up. That's the y-axis. Yes, thank you. Beautiful. Right, that's right. I should, good point. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to lose anybody. <laughs> no, it's good. And it really helps, actually, since we're doing this with sound rather than pictures. I mean, we please jump in with that kind of thing because uh, that's— you know, an example of me forgetting people may have been a, a little while since anyone did Cartesian coordinates and X and Y <laughs> yeah, and all that. Quite a while, actually. But, <laughs> but uh, so what? So what? Are, you were starting to plot the movement on that graph paper. Yeah, right. So it's it's a graph where you know, as you say, you've got this horizontal axis where you're going to say how long is the pendulum? Is it two centimeters long, or three, or four, or whatever? And then how long did it take to make 10 swings? That's going to be graphed as a dot vertically measuring the number of seconds. Was it 20 seconds to make 10 swings or 23 seconds or whatever? And so as I started, you know, making a dot and then I stretch the pendulum and then I time it again and now I got a new dot and I plot these dots. After about four or five dots, I noticed that the dots were all forming a pattern. They they didn't make a straight line. I thought they might, but they didn't. But they did definitely make a clear shape. And I recognized this shape because I had just been learning about it in my math class in algebra. And it's a shape called a parabola. So, so why did this, why was this an epiphany for you? Because it gave me the feeling that this pendulum knows algebra. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a spooky thought that here's this thing, which is just a little piece of weight hanging off of a string, and it secretly seems to know this thing that I have just been learning about Y and X in algebra class, and it somehow is behaving in accordance with algebra. And it gave me this feeling that there's a hidden world, that there's this secret world of math underneath the world we can see. You know, or I don't know. So really, honestly, it felt like a quasi-religious experience, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. I remember having a chill of a type that I've felt only once or twice in my life since then, um, 
once when I was in Florence, the first time I ever went to Florence, Italy, I stood before, as so many people have, Michelangelo's David. Yeah. You know, the statue of the, the boy and his, his hand is too big and he's looking very determined at Goliath, who he's probably scared out of his mind he has to fight. And <laughs> I, I mean, I just, there was something in seeing that statue that thrilled me. Thrilled is not even the word for it. I felt a shiver of some kind of transcendent beauty or perfection or something that I think was similar to the feeling I felt when I suddenly realized that math was underneath the the patterns of the world. That sense of beauty is so interesting. I think I think civilians like me often think of mathematics as being rigid and hard and always reduce it to two plus two equals four. Whereas I'm constantly reading about how one of the attributes of a good mathematical proof is its elegance, which is a lot like saying the thrill of beauty that you got standing in front of the David was one of the things that makes you know a proof is a good proof in mathematics, which sounds very non-rigid. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. Mathematicians don't experience it as, I mean, hard, yes, hard in that it's hard for us to do, but hard as far as um, cut and dried or uncreative or, no, I mean, math is is supremely creative, just like any other. To us, it feels like a kind of art, like like sculpture, like music, like uh, maybe even acting or, you know, I mean, the whole person is involved in the creation of math and in the discovery of math. Remember when you gave me a geometrical problem to solve, <laughs> and and I spent two years, every time I'd get on an airplane, uh, other people would be reading books or watching movies, and I'd be with a, a compass and a straight edge trying to derive a proof of this, what seemed like an obvious thing. It was obvious that what what was taking <laughs> place, but I couldn't prove it. And, yeah. and I must have sent you a hundred different <laughs> proofs of what I thought were proofs, and you kept saying, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, welcome to the world of math. You you became a mathematician with that experience. It's so interesting <laughs> that you were stubborn like that because that's what – I'm serious. That's the mathematical impulse, that feeling of determination that you had, that you didn't want to give up. Um, you know, why didn't you just quit? I, it just – it was obvious to me that this thing – was true that I don't want to get into the complex idea, but it was it had to do with the corners of a, an equilateral triangle, and one was equal to the other in some way, and it was just obvious that it was, <laughs> and I yeah. and I couldn't prove that it was true in all cases. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, I I don't know why I stuck with it. I guess I'm stubborn. <laughs> well, it's, I think there's an interesting little puzzle there, and actually maybe that's the word to use. Think of how many people like to do puzzles just for pleasure. Mm. The feeling of being stuck on a crossword puzzle or Sudoku, you know, this is not something we do in school for homework. We do it for pleasure just because we like to think or do logic puzzles out of books. You know, so, so let me ask you a kind of a fundamental question. Where do you stand on the idea that some people have— that they're just not mass people, that there are mass people and non-mass people, and they came into the world as non-mass people and they're never going to be able to change. How do you feel about that? Um, 
But let me give you a kind of waffly answer on it. That there is such a thing as talent. I do believe that some people might be more suited to becoming, you know, really entranced by math. But I do think most people give up way too early, and they've had all kinds of experiences in school that were aversive, that turned them off to math in some way, that made them feel stupid or um, stressed or anxious or something. I, ha I had a similar experience. I remember in high school, I went into my first class in trigonometry, and for an hour, there were these unintelligible questions being flung at the class. What, what's the sine? What's the cosine? I mean, I didn't know what they were talking about. And it all seemed like some mechanical motor that had parts I was supposed to plug into the motor in the right spot. And it didn't sound at all like what you were describing before of the fun, the beauty of math. It sounded like mm -hmm. ju just a mechanical process. And I left and then never came back. And I regret, have regretted it all my life because I wish I understood trigonometry. Well, this is the, the, the description that you just gave. I think many of your listeners will um, feel it themselves. It's just a question of where they hit the wall. So some people will say, I, I mean, what I always hear, and I think all mathematicians or all math teachers will tell you this, what people say to us uh, when they hear that we teach math is, I always liked math until I got to, and then it's something oh. that's different from person <laughs> to person. Yeah. You know, I really liked math until I got to fractions. Those were very confusing, the thing with the common denominator. Yeah. You know, or other people will say, I really liked all of arithmetic and I liked algebra, but there was something about geometry. I'm just not a visual person and, you know, I'm not right-brained. So what I think is going on is that people more or less instinctively like math, just like most people like puzzles. It's just that it can become very alienating when something goes too fast or, or you missed a few days and so you missed an important definition that it starts to seem, to use the words you used earlier, rigid or uh, mechanical or, you know, something that feels arbitrary and, and that is no longer any fun. Are you still teaching a course at Cornell for people who hate math? Uh, yes. We don't describe it that way, by the way. <laughs> oh, I thought that was in the catalog. <laughs> no, it's not in the catalog. <laughs> what do you call we, it? We try to put a little more positive spin on it. <laughs> so, what, do you, what do you call it? Yeah, the course is called Mathematical Explorations. Uh -huh. Okay, so honestly what it is is that Cornell feels everybody should know a little bit of math before they graduate. And there are some kids who thought, oh, I thought I was done with that in high school, and I, I'm really not eager to do it again. You know, like they just want to be a history major or a government major or art or something. They, they're not interested in math at all, yet Cornell imposes this requirement on them like the swim test. You know, you have to be able to swim or you cannot graduate. So I'm the last person standing between them and graduating, and so they really don't want to be there. They come in usually with a pretty unhappy-looking face. <laughs> And so I think that that has to be addressed. Before we even talk about math, let's talk about what this room is going to feel like that we're going to be in together. <laughs> Sounds like a play, doesn't it? You know, like something from Sartre. <laughs> we're going to be in this room together for the next three months. <laughs> Another definition of hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you do with these people? Um, you could give them another course in algebra or something, but... 
We think a better thing to do is show them what math really is. Let's give them a taste of what it really means to discover something and to make conjectures and to be frustrated and then solve it and have epiphanies. And so this course, um, that's why it's called Mathematical Explorations. They're genuine explorations where I don't teach them how to do things. I don't, in fact, I don't lecture at all. Um, I give them questions that are meant to be interesting, and I have them work on the questions together at they sit at tables of like four to six students, and um, they can talk and brainstorm and you know challenge each other, and then we all as a class talk about their ideas. Uh, I like to hear an example of of what okay. what you uh, challenge them with. What kind of a question? So here's an example of one. Um, I asked them to think one time about uh, a city like Manhattan that's laid out on a grid. If I were giving you um, directions in, in New York City, I might say, go three blocks north and one block east. You know, that is rather than saying distances, like how many miles or how many feet, I would say it's three blocks uptown and, and one block east. That's a, a normal way to measure distance in the city where things are laid out on a grid. It's not the distance as the crow flies. You know, you could imagine a bird flying between the buildings or something. But for someone, like say, if you're in a taxi cab, you got to measure distances east and west and north and south. And so I asked the students to um, figure out what, what a circle looks like if this is how you're going to measure distance. That is like draw for me, if I put a point on a piece of graph paper, imagine that that's a starting point, and now show me all the points that are three blocks away from that point. You know, so you could imagine going three blocks east or three blocks west or north or south, but you could also go two blocks east and one block north. Do you get what I'm asking here? Are, you, are all the points three blocks away going to show a circle, describe a circle? That's the question. Excellent. That's the question. What will the what will it be? I mean, it sounds like a circle, right? Because yeah. everything is three blocks away from this point. So if you draw this out, do you want to? Tr- do you have a piece of paper in front of you? No, I'm doing it in my head. You're doing it in your head. So what do you picture it looks like? If I go three blocks to the east and three blocks to the west and three blocks to the north and three to the south, yeah, those points are all a circle. Those would all sit on one circle. But what about if you go two over and then one up? Then that's going to be indented. It's going to, it's going to, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get, I'm going to get a, a sine wave or some damn thing. <laughs> well, you're right that it's indented. And so if you draw this out, you'll see that it makes a shape that looks like a diamond. Oh, really? Yeah, it actually looks like a square except tilted so that it looks like a diamond. I think I'm getting an epiphany here. Well, uh, let me tell you what happened with the class. I mean, it's great that you're getting it. You have a positive reaction. I had a student in the class who started shouting, and she said, this is wrong. (laughs) Why? (laughs) This is wrong. This is not right. (laughs) So because I asked the class first, how would you define a circle? And they said it's all the, you know, points that are three blocks away from the given point, a circle of radius three. So I said, what does a circle look like in the taxi cab geometry? That's what we call this uh-huh. thing we're doing, ta- taxi cab geometry. What does a circle look like? And the kids draw it, and it looks like a diamond. And she said, it's no good. It's wrong. It's not round. So, but I said, well, the rules are different. This is not crow geometry. This is taxi cab <laughs> geometry. So why would you expect it to look round? And she was just very, you know, uh, flabbergasted at this. So that's really interesting to me. Did you learn anything from her reaction? Did you, well, did you think it. about her reaction and try to see it from her point of view? I'm, I'm wondering if there is something to learn. Her reaction is fantastic because, first of all, her reaction is heartfelt. 
She felt what she felt and let it out, which is that this is surprising, and this is counterintuitive, and it's upsetting. And all of that is part of the mathematical experience. It's part of any creative experience, I think, that you you have a prejudice about how things are going to turn out. But if you use your mind and use reasoning, sometimes you surprise yourself. The, the creativity of math starts to get infectious, I imagine, in that kind of a class. Did the student come out of her feeling of uh, resistance? Did she start to get it and enjoy it? Well, what was wonderful about her is that she, she was always um, ready to fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me say why I like it so much. I'm, I don't want students who are just acquiescing to the authority of the teacher. I, I tried not to have any authority. I just... I'm just asking them questions and asking them to think and use their own judgment, use their own reasoning and their own creativity so that they can see that they have the power, that math, we all have math within us. And it's not that the teacher told you how to do it. You don't need the teacher. Um, you can you can invent a lot by yourself. And they never had this experience in their 16 years of school before. They just were following the rules, coloring by numbers, you know. And this is a chance to paint your own painting, not just color by numbers. So, so I, I liked her reaction. And, um, you know, yeah, she would, I mean, she took on this role in the sociology of the class where she was always the one fighting back. But I could see that she liked it and that she thought it was kind of cool that you could, you know, you could have different geometries. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool too. I love how you talk about creating your own geometry. This show is about communication a lot. And uh, I think of teaching and the relationship between the student and the teacher as a kind of quintessential example of communication. Do you have a theory or an idea, a way of working that you go by that helps you relate to your students in a a way you think is productive? Sure. Yeah, lots of ideas. Um, I think a very important one, maybe the most important of all, is... Uh, wow, I was going to say the word love. Maybe it's too strong. But that this is about friendship, that we have to care about each other, especially I have to care about them. Um, that if they don't, if they feel my job is to judge them or to evaluate them, which is often a big part of what the teacher has to do, giving a grade, that's, that already is a strike against the relationship. If, if it's really that, you know, we're friends and I'm trying to help you or I want to share something that's going to be good for you or that you will – that will make your life richer or more fun or more interesting. And I really mean it sincerely. You know, if that comes across, then I think that's a big start because most of the things that teachers do wrong, they wouldn't do with a friend of theirs. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Mm. having patience or sympathy or joking around or just any of the good things that people instinctively do with their friends. If you thought of your student as your friend, truly, I think most of us would automatically be better teachers. That's a really interesting way to put it. We, we We don't often end a conversation with our friend and give him an F. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You know, a question I get very often and usually from science teachers, is how do you help them be more curious? Because they sometimes face a class that has blank faces, are not apparently interested in what the 
the teacher is trying to get them interested in and mm-hmm. don't seem basically curious about the, the whole thing. What do you, sure. do you no, do you face that in oh, ever yeah. in your classes? How do you handle that? How do you well, get people to be curious? People are curious. That's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is when you make someone um, try to answer your question instead of their question. Mm. That the trick is to have respect. So, you know, if I start jamming something down the student's throat, well, okay, maybe they might accept it because there's power. You know, I'm the professor. They have to do what I say. But they're not going to be curious about that. But if you give them a puzzle um, that's truly interesting, most people are natively curious about it. And, you know, that. so curiosity is not the problem. It's giving them the space to express their curiosity instead of jamming your answer down their throat. Let them have their question. That really does sound smart, because then it really sounds like you're paying attention to what might interest them. And if you start from that, sounds like you have a much better chance of a happy conclusion. When we come back, Steve leads me into the dark and spooky world of artificial intelligence after this short break. America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Steve Strogatz. Do you think if we don't even have a smattering of the ability to think the way mathematicians think, that we're liable to be swamped by the increasing presence of artificial intelligence and the increasing kind of directive it has over our lives? Well, I'm swamped. I'm a little stuck on your word swamped. Um, We're using artificial intelligence all the time without realizing it now, and often it's helpful. Like when you have a spam filter in your email, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about that spam filter is is making a guess about which messages you want to read and which ones you don't. And um, there's also usually a button where you can say this is spam or it's not spam. Every time you hit this is spam or this is not spam, the, the um, program updates its probabilities about sort of the telltale signatures of what is likely to be spam, things that, you know, so often don't start with an address line. They may be spam, but maybe not always. Maybe you have friends who never like to say, Dear Alan, you know. So, so you can train your spam filter. And so here's a case where indirectly a kind of artificial intelligence is helping you deal with your email inbox. I guess it, it, that certainly is useful. I'm thinking, and and most artificial intelligence promises to be useful. But what I wonder about is it's a machine that learns by itself without being programmed mm-hmm. much, if at all. It, where is it going to get its um, values from? How is it going mm-hmm. to make moral judgments? Uh, unless we tilt it in one direction or another. For instance, when a car is able to decide 
whether or not to save the driver's life by veering away from the little girl chasing a ball into the street. Mm-hmm. Is the car going to put more weight on the life of the owner of the car than it does on the person in the street? Should it? Mm-hmm. Who, yeah. Are we at the mercy of of a machine that we've made and don't understand how it arrives at its conclusions? Mm-hmm. That's a very important problem, of course, for the future of self-driving cars. And that's a case where I imagine we will have to program in answers. I don't know how the the program itself would come up with reasonable moral um, choices, except that that's such a difficult problem. I don't even know how a human being would come up with the choice. You know, what what would you do? Yeah, I guess, well, I guess it depends on your instinctual feelings at the moment. But it's interesting that we're heading more and more toward really sophisticated machine learning. He wrote mm-hmm. an article about Alpha Zero. What 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 is Alpha Zero in in a nutshell? <laughs> well, it's um, a chess playing program that was created by the people at DeepMind, an artificial intelligence company that was acquired by Google. And um, Alpha Zero is is a a program that taught itself how to play chess. It, it was given the rules of the game. It didn't have to teach itself that. It was told what the rules were. But no strategies? It it didn't know any strategies. That's right. So it wasn't given any special openings that human beings have figured out to be good ways to begin the game. It didn't learn any special endgame knowledge. It just just played itself millions of times in a matter of hours, and it learned from its mistakes. It was based on a kind of artificial intelligence called a neural network um, using a method of updating its estimates of what's important about king safety or the position or activity of the pieces and all the other things that chess players worry about. It figured out all these principles on its own, and in about four or five hours, it became the best chess-playing entity that the world has ever seen. I I say it that funny way because not only was it better than any human being has ever been, but it was better than any existing computer, which are now the best chess-playing Entities. <laughs> no human can beat these these computers. No, not even close. Because in chess, we have rating system that tells you how strong a player is. And a beginner at chess is rated about 1,400 in some arbitrary units. Um, I'm about a 2,100, which is considered an expert player. A master would be about a 2,300. The world's best human is about 2,850. So 28. 100-something is is a really tremendously strong world champion caliber player. And the best computers are about 3,300. Wow. You know, 500 points higher than the world champion. And Alpha Zero, nobody really knows how to even give it a rating because it completely crushed the computer world champion. It beat, it didn't lose a single game to it. In the first match they played, it, it won 28 games and had 72 draws. So it annihilated the best um, computer playing program called Stockfish, which, by the way, I learned, I was curious, I looked this up, um, I thought, what? that's a kind of a weird name, Stockfish. It turns out that's an insult that Falstaff hurls in one of Shakespeare's plays. Oh, so that's funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. I don't know why the, uh, the creators of it called it Stockfish, but anyway, I mean, fish is a disparaging term we use in chess for a weak player. We'll say you fish. <laughs> oh, and I never heard that. Yeah, fish is the biggest insult you could call another chess player. <laughs> <laughs> you said in the article that 
Alpha Zero displays a breed of intellect that humans have not seen before. Yeah. Whoa. I think you, so. You mean, took, you mean that it's just so smart that we, or, or is it a kind of smart we don't know? Okay. Well, that, yeah. I, so let me say, what I'm saying is controversial. A lot of computer scientists have written to me telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, and they're right. I don't. But <laughs> <laughs> having said that, um, I do know what I'm talking about when it comes to chess. And I can tell you, and so do much better chess players, could tell you that the way that AlphaZero beat the best computer program, chess engine as it's called, it played in a style that no computer has ever played. It played what to, to a human master looks like a very risky, intuitive, creative, brilliant. The word we would like to use is romantic. See, that now we're getting back to those art terms that yes. you apply to math. It's so right. interesting how it keeps turning back to this aesthetic appreciation of what is considered by so many people in our culture to be something mechanical. It's the, to me, it's the difference between dancing, which you, I apply to you as you approach chess, as you approach math. You dance with it. The difference between that and what they used to publish in the Arthur Murray dance lessons ads, <laughs> where you, put, you put, put your two feet here and you put one foot over here, then you put another foot over there, and now you're doing the foxtrot. You, you may be doing a mechanical version of the foxtrot, but you're not dancing. Not yet, anyway. And, and you dance, and that's so interesting to me. Well, when this Alpha Zero plays chess, it looks to us like it's dancing. That is, it. Do, I mean, with the great chess playing engines that have that have beaten a world champion, they seem to us like machines. They just calculate very far. They can see, you know, dozens of moves ahead. They can look at every possibility. They seem very mechanical to us, and that is not what Alpha Zero did. Alpha Zero plays in a style that looks like the greatest human players, except superhuman. It plays in a very inspired, risky-looking style where it's not – it hasn't calculated everything to the end. It somehow makes some kind of assessment that my position is good and I think this is going to work out. It seems like it's making inspired guesses, but except that it's very, very rarely wrong. And you said it showed – it seemed to show insight. Yeah. In, in, in what way – can a machine show insight? How did you experience well, its showing insight? Because it doesn't look like it's just calculating, you know, if I go here, the other machine will go there, and then I'll go here, and it'll go there. That, to me, is just a brutal kind of calculation that doesn't involve higher-order thinking. It, it's like it doesn't see that, you know, there's always this expression about the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. I feel like the old computers could only see the trees, they can't see the overall shape of the game, the strategy, the big architecture. I don't know. What are the words you would use? Like in drama, you would speak about the arc, right? Yeah. There's there's a whole layout that is a higher order thing than just who said what to who. I said this, you said that. You know, if you think about how to describe Macbeth, you know, well, Macbeth is a story about ambition and power going to your head and, and um, going crazy from that and... That's not word for word what's in the play. That's a higher order understanding of the play. Yeah, I see. And I feel like when I see the way that Alpha Zero constructs its chess games, it has a grand, higher 
vision of the game than the machine it beat, stockfish, which is very myopic and only sees the trees. Well, now I'm dizzy for a whole other reason. (laughs) (laughs) The world is not just passing me by, it's passing humanity by. It's so interesting to me that we can make a tool that's smarter than we are. Mm-hmm. Well, we've taught it how to teach itself. That's, it's interesting. This sort of ties back to our whole discussion of education. You know, this is about students and teachers, except that this case, in this case, the student is, is made of silicon or software or bits or something. I mean, this thing, what we did was we endowed it with the ability to teach itself. I mean, again, I'm probably, I'm sure I'm getting carried away, but I don't think it's very far-fetched to imagine if it's not alpha zero, something coming in the future that we're going to teach how to teach itself, like we've taught this program how to teach itself how to play chess. That's going to, you know, the next program will teach the next program, and, and this chain of teachers and students will continue, and we will be left in the dust. I mean, that's our <laughs> inevitable future if we're still here, You're if right. we haven't killed ourselves with <laughs> nuclear weapons or climate change. Right. Sounds a little ominous to me that we're headed toward that end game with our own tools. Is, do you think it really will lead to that? <laughs> well, who knows, really? I, I don't know. It's pretty wild speculation. But I think we'll have um, – I picture sort of a high and a low where there will be a time when um, artificial intelligence gives us a great dawning of new insight. And and that will be the golden era. Like, for instance, if the day comes that artificial intelligence can solve some of our most intractable scientific problems, you know, we've had the war on cancer for, I don't know, decades now, and we're making progress. But what if the real understanding of what's essential in cancer requires an intelligence superior to ours that is possessed by these new, this new generation of self-teaching machines? I could picture a time when medicine is completely changed and and life will be easier and healthier and longer and better for, for human beings, you know, assuming these machines stay benevolent. <laughs> That's, of course, an assumption. There's all kinds of science fiction scenarios here. The, but The darkness but we, keeps creeping back in here. <laughs> well, because you can imagine that their interests will not necessarily align with our interests. Yeah, once they are aware that they have interests and can act on it. Yeah, so that's that's the danger. I mean, uh, there are all those kind of Terminator <laughs> scenarios that we can think about. But but before we get to those, I do feel like there will be happy times both for medicine and for those of us who are scientists um, when a lot of the problems that we've been struggling to solve for millennia will be solved by our computer teachers. And maybe if they're really good, they'll not only be good at solving science problems, but they'll become good explainers. You know, like maybe they can work I've, with us. I've wondered that if they're so smart, if we're, if we're creating machines that are so smart, why can't they spend a little of their energy making clear to us not only what their answer is to the big problems, but how they arrived at those answers so that, exactly. we, so that we can track the reasoning and maybe say, you know, this, we just took a vote in the lab here or in the country, and we decided your solution is not in our interest, and we don't want to go that way. So change that a little bit. But you can't, uh-huh. can't do that if you don't know how it's arriving at its decision. 
that's a very exciting scenario to me where um, it's not just about answers but about reasoning, like you said. And I, I could imagine that they will at some point be able to explain themselves. That, that would be a very illuminating time in human history. You know, if we had this superior intelligence that, we, that were our students that are now teaching us. Maybe, again, I'm sort of sticking too close to home because I've had this experience of my students teaching me. But I feel like this is something for humankind in the future, that our machines may, in one happy scenario, teach us for a while. <laughs> I hope we make machines that are more benevolent in general than we tend to be Yeah, at, at times, anyway. Well, we're, we're reaching the end of our uh, allotted time. Um, are you are you interested in doing these seven questions? We have these quick questions that invite <laughs> quick answers. Why not? Everyone does yeah, them, don't they? Yeah, they're, they're roughly to do with communication and relating. Okay. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? <laughs> well, I, my dog, Murray. <laughs> That's great. I know Murray. I wish I understood him, too. <laughs> What do you wish other people understood about you? <laughs> How in love I am with Murray? <laughs> what, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? <laughs> oh, gee. Uh, uh, that's not ringing any bells for me. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to blank out on that. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Mm. Um, I think I would just kind of go flat, just not even nod, not not even murmur, just let them talk into a vacuum. Yeah, sometimes that's hard. We're programmed to nod, aren't we? Yeah. No, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Well— a person who can't admit they're wrong. Mm. I mean, I really think that's important. We all make mistakes, and be a grown-up and admit when you're wrong. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> um, has to be in person. The bad news is hard enough as it is, but I want to be able to use all the different ways of of making contact, facial expressions, voice. Yeah, I mean, it's too, for instance, there's so much misunderstanding over email. So mm -hmm. I would do it in person. Last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, cruelty. Mm. Cruelty towards me, but cruelty in general in the person's character. I can't stand that. This has been really fun talking to you. It's one of, our, one of our fun conversations of which I hope we have many more. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode— all the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. 
Stephen Strogatz is a brilliant mathematician and an inspiring teacher. What makes him unique is that he's fascinated by the curiosities of everyday life. He finds math where you'd least expect it, and he's able to illuminate the wonders of our world through the beauty of mathematics. Stephen is the Jacob Gould Schumann Professor of Mathematics at Cornell University. And in addition to this episode, he's also a frequent guest on Radio Lab and Science Friday. Steve is the author of Nonlinear Dynamics and Chaos, Sync, The Calculus of Friendship, and The Joy of X. You can find out more about Steve by visiting his website at stevenstrogatz.com. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Stephen Johnson, the author of a number of engrossing books on the history of ideas. All the books that I've written about breakthrough ideas, almost all of them follow a completely different pattern, which I I called years ago, I called a slow hunch, which is, you know, instead of a light bulb moment or an aha moment, you, you get this inkling that there's something worth exploring or some idea out there. And it stays in that kind of hunch state for months for you, in some cases for a decade or more in some of the people that I've written about. And it's only over time to, that, that it actually kind of crystallizes into something more powerful. So if you set up your life looking for a eureka moment, you actually won't succeed. What you want to do is cultivate these like hints that are floating around because that's what the truly transformative ideas are going to come from. Stephen Johnson, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.